0: Welcome to the Awakening Shalom podcast. The Awakening Shalom podcast is an opportunity for digital faith formation at Myers Park Baptist Church that accompanies the Awakening series, a year-long journey of exploration and discernment which invites all people to come learn about the current social justice issues of the day and how they impact our faith. What we are awakening to is Shalom, the Hebrew word for the peace and beauty that exists when we are living in right relationship with God, ourselves, other human beings, and all created things.
1: Welcome back to our Awakening Shalom podcast series, Pomenay, and we are focusing on what it means to persevere in a pandemic. I am really excited to have the professor in with us today.
0: Mm, yes, uh,
1: and and just to give a little context about the podcast series for those of you who are just joining us or having heard the first couple of episodes, um, we are really focusing on this Greek term that is used over and over again in the New Testament. Um, really, a lot by Paul, a lot by John of Patmos in the Book of Revelation to John, and he is calling for the followers of Christ who are being persecuted under the oppressive regime of the roman empire to persevere in the midst of their trouble we had a beautiful conversation with some of our rabbi rabbinical colleagues last week talking about what that word means and is it patience is it patient endurance is it an active word or is it a word that can lead to complacency Mm and excited about this conversation today i am here with the reverend dr benjamin boswell and ben why don't you introduce your friend (laughs)
0: <laughs> oh, And I'm so pumped and excited to have my good friend, Dr. Gerardo Marty, on our podcast. Hi, Gerardo. Mm-hmm. We're <laughs> glad to have you here. Um, Dr. Marty is a professor and chair of sociology at the prestigious Davidson university right up the road from the church here uh, davidson uh, college ben davidson <laughs> college i'm sorry i'm sorry but, I'm a university Dedicated
2: Catholic. liberal arts college you know okay dedicated yeah. Yeah, yes,
0: thank you for nice. thank you for that um yeah when i heard that their uh, admission rates were uh harder than duke i started having mad respect for davidson so you know that was that was a few years ago now so davidson's been uh really making a name for themselves and um Dr. Marty has, is the author of a number of books. He's uh, that I'll just mention a few: "Worship Across the Racial Divide" and um, "American Blind Spot," which I'm going to talk about in just a minute. Which is, is a new book, and then "The Glass Church" about Robert Schuler and the Crystal Cathedral, another uh, new book that he's got out. Um, and writes on a number of different topics at the intersection of religion, race, and class, and also politics and uh, a number of other uh, sort of subfields that are related to those. And uh, Dr. Marty has been attending Myers Park Baptist Church for a little while and sometimes is able to drag his family with him, which we're so grateful for that as well. And um, uh, Gerardo's been on a couple of our pilgrimages. He was on the Deep South pilgrimage uh, that we went on with Mayfield Memorial Missionary Baptist Church and uh, was also... Uh, on our immigration pilgrimage to Stewart Detention Center in Lumpkin, Georgia. What a haul that was. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, what an interesting uh, travel trip that was and, and, and has just been a, a good personal friend uh, and colleague of mine. And I've really gotten a chance to really enjoy getting a chance to get to know him. Um, Gerardo, would you talk a little bit more about some other uh, areas of your work that we, I might not have mentioned?
2: Well, thank you. My wife and I have been so appreciative of the ministry of Myers Park Baptist, and we've gained so much. It's been so great. Uh, Even amidst the challenges, you guys have really rose to that challenge and done admirable work even since then. In terms of my own work, I was very fortunate that um, at a young age, even in high school, I ran across some very interesting material that taught me about the world in a bigger way. Uh, understanding language, interpersonal relationships, the way to theorize interpersonal um, kind of connections, the definitions of the self. Uh, And over time, I got more interested in organizational dynamics. Then you can't escape the flows of history and how history and long contexts of history have shaped who we are. And so it became a point where when I was doing academic work, I felt like I was reading my, my own biography. I was really learning more about myself. And in doing so, I felt that everything was being answered. Uh, the ability to reflect on my own experience, the way to get out of our own familiar frames of understanding of things. Um, I've had a deep religious um, sort of a faith for a very long time. I had a radical conversion in middle, middle school. I've never left that. Um, I have not always resonated with the context that I've been in, and I've always been the person who asked a lot of questions. Um, but that um, has never made me question whether God is real or um, the power of Jesus or, or things like that. So in, in that sense, I feel like um, I've continued to resource my faith at the same time that I've tried to understand the relationship between religion and some of the most vital questions of our day. And so my work has focused more on congregations because congregations are a convenient place to be able to draw limits. Where do we stop um, who we talk to and what we're trying to figure out? But at the same time, congregations become mirrors for broader developments in society. And so congregations have been the place in which I've looked at social change. Social change as it relates to uh, racial injustice and oppression. Social change as it relates to um, changing identities and sense of how I connect to um, the questions of faith today. Um, the issues of the flow of capital and finance um, and sure. the dangers uh, of of capital. So, um, so congregations is is it really just about gee, you know, um, are they growing or not? It's it's uh, it's a path to be able to understand bigger questions. And then because of a growing international connection with um, relationships all over the globe and uh, aggressive reading and the kinds of uh, scholarly networks that I'm a part of. I mean, I'm learning something literally every day. So I'm so fortunate to be a part of, um, of a, an arena of thought where I not only have something that I've been able to contribute, but I continue to learn and grow and change. And so my thoughts, you know, from 15 years ago may be a little different from what they are today, only because I continue to challenge myself. Um, and that's been a real joy. So that's what my work has continued to do, and um, my last works that have come out this year, um, I'm I'm proud of again, but I still have two other books that I have on the way, um, and I have a biography that's that's in process. So there's more work coming in the future, and hopefully the next 10 years will be another time when I can not only grow for myself, but to present information that would be useful to the church and so if there's another distinctive aspect of my work is that i try not to stay only in the clouds of what we try to you know understand theoretically or conceptually but much of my work is read by church leaders more church leaders have read my work than scholars in their grasp to understand okay the world continues to change whatever i learned in seminary or when i read the bible doesn't necessarily help us to understand what's happening right now you know in 2020 (laughs) um and jesus isn't always that clear about well how do we deal with this that or the other at the moment that takes effort it takes some effort for us to do that so i try to resource that as best i can and that has always been exciting also well,
0: you can count me as one of those pastors that is reading your work um, uh, diligently, and uh, I want to say congratulations to you on being named the chair of the Association for the Sociology of Religion very recently. Uh, I think that's uh, just a prestigious honor, and it's I think it's exciting to have someone who studies congregations uh, in, that, in that role. That's really uh, in, intensely exciting at a time of congregational decline, to have such attention um, placed on the role of congregations, not only within themselves, but how they impact society and what they may re- might reflect about changing uh, things in society. And I'm obviously going to make a shameless plug for your for one of your new books. Uh, this is the American Blind Spot. Uh, unfortunate cover, but
2: it's a good good uh, <laughs> good book. Otherwise, I have um, one friend that puts a sticky note over that right front corner, so. so. I, <laughs> i won't I won't hide from facing
0: reality each day um, like your friend, uh, but this is race, class and religion and and the, the trump presidency and so one of the reasons I wanted to mention this to everybody I, I I find it to be extremely helpful in connecting historical dots to recent events, and so a lot of there's been a lot of writing, as you know, about how did how did the Trump presidency happen and um, it, it seems so unprecedented. Uh, particularly to many white liberals uh, like myself and others uh, in our community, uh, who just couldn't believe that something like this could happen, and and but what but what you and other scholars have shown is that in some ways it is a logical outcome of a long historical trajectory um, of white religion in America and its relationship to politics, and I find that to be both. Um, comforting in one way and like, oh, we're not all crazy. This thing is not just a random occurrence. It actually, there's a a historical thread here Mm -hmm. and also incredibly discouraging, right? Like, so it's always been going on and we can't do anything about it. We keep trying to defeat this thing and it just never goes away. So, um, and one of the terms that comes up for me, it's a lot of, I think there's a lot of people, our folks who've read and our church have read the Brian Stevenson books and the Tanahashi coats and and they're reading oh new Jim Crow with Big uh, Michelle Alexander and they've read some theologians Willie Jennings and Kelly Brown Douglas so they're reading some that have the, the mixture of theology and race um and in, in interwoven and some even sociology and race interwoven you know white fragility Robin DiAngelo but what your book does that I, I don't I find to be rarer. Uh, is connecting the economic class uh, portion and creating that intersection of race, religion, and class. And and there's a term that I think um, highlights that intersection that comes up throughout your book, which is uh, white Christian libertarianism. And I wonder if you could spend just a couple minutes uh, kind of explaining that term and how you came to it and, and how you think it helps explain um, sort of the history of,
2: white American religion. Well, one of the most exciting things that has happened most recently is much better conversations, both about race and the connection between race and capitalism. And uh, so we've always paid attention to some sense of social class because I think everybody knows you know, black people are poorer, and we we all know that there's this wealth gap and that that wealth gap has expanded. But in terms of really understanding where that comes from, that's where the debate comes around. And some people say, unfortunately, some really hurtful things by sort of saying, well, uh, black people need to try harder, or black people need to depend on themselves better, or they need to get smarter, or something like that. It, it's less a biological argument these days, it's more of a cultural argument that somehow they just haven't really done everything they need to do um, in order to be able to be better in their families and in their own educational lives and in their work ethic and things like that. But sociology shows that this is still a form of racism, and it's still not new. It's been something that's been there for a very, very long time. Um, The other thing that I think is important, and what I try to do in this particular book, is that most of us, when we begin to understand something about uh, exploitation, oppression—the kinds of difficulties that groups have—they focus on the black experience. Now, there's a there's the a good reason to do that. It's um, I mean, black people in a sense are written into the Constitution um, in the three-fifths clause and and in the fugitive uh, you know uh, pursuit of fugitives. So we know that blacks were here from the beginning, and we know that from the very beginning they've been excluded. From the kinds of things that we would see as part of what America is supposed to accomplish, uh, but we are less good about integrating the Native American experience, the way in which Indigenous people and their land were taken and, and and that they were thrown out, and the ways in which um, America was built on the presumption that they were not worthy of that kind of call, and that we needed to instead be able to have. Um, people who could build on that, those white settlers moving in and taking over empty land, quote-unquote, that was of no use and that they could uh, do better with. Uh, and then we also don't always remember about the Chinese um, who who had come in and the Chinese Exclusion Act, the, the most explicit naming of a racial ethnic group and, and explicitly banning them because they were a threat to white workers, Um, We also don't uh, pay attention to other Asian groups because alongside the Chinese were the Japanese and other groups from uh, East Asia. And then we also don't always remember Latinos or the Latinx community. And we forget that so much of the United States exists because of the conquest of Mexico and the taking over of territory, the majority of what was Mexico in that day. And where indigenous Mexicans became um, Americans overnight without having moved, you know, without having taken a step uh, and the way in which those indigenous Mexicans who many of whom have been in the United States longer than most whites who claim an uh, immigrant past today uh, and yet have never been fully incorporated. So one of the things that I try to do in the book is I try to lay out the way in which race has always mattered in the economic fortunes of different groups and the ways in which the United States has, deliberately and conscientiously favored whatever a definition of whiteness might have been. Uh, and that's happened early on, not just in terms of defining citizenship, but actual real kinds of benefits, like the kind of property that you can own, the kind of business advantages that you may have, the kind of land that might be given to you by the federal government. And so once we come to, com- to understand the comprehensiveness of what whiteness meant for becoming a true American, and the way it shaped immigration debates so that the fundamental aspects of what we understand to be our immigration laws were really framed around questions of whiteness and leaving foreigners, non-whites out as dangerous, as bad for our economy, as making our country weaker, as, as people who would threaten our way of life, that that has been around for a very, very long time. So to me, the surprise is less understanding how we can finally understand a more comprehensive picture of why we have a racial and ethnic wealth gap that favors whites overall. We also need to then understand how Christianity shaped itself in the early 20th century around those threats, and that white Christianity also saw that that threat of immigrants, that threat of the foreigner, that threat of dangerous radicals, became something that racialized Christianity in a distinctive way. And that the prosperity of America really meant the prosperity of white Christians. And that prosperity of white Christianity then further sacralized policies that really became much more explicit Um, in the mid 20th century. And so while I could spend time tracing through step by step, most of us are aware that Ronald Reagan and the moral majority were super collided with each other and reinforced each other. And it wasn't just that Ronald Reagan is known as a cultural warrior who represented the moral majority kind of uh, cause in the name of certain moral issues, but there was a fundamental economic movement that was girding all of that. And that even the moral majority was a type of economic movement to try to get the federal government outside of their segregated academies, their segregated colleges and universities, because they wanted to make sure that they weren't taxed. They wanted to avoid what they started to call big government because they felt that the government not was infringing on the religious freedom, to believe what they believe or have convictions, but they were trying to make sure that they were correcting for the racial um, discrimination that was active and ongoing at the time. So at the same time that there was an expansion of credit and a changing of banking policies, which is all consistent with libertarianism, Christianity came alongside. And so I think that uh, what we need to come to a better understanding of is the way in which Christianity and neoliberalism work Mm. together into a type of Christian libertarianism. And we say white Christian libertarianism because although we have Christians of all colors, of all ancestral backgrounds, it is a white Christians that abided by this; these white conservative Christians who found their way to be able to see how certain economic policies aligned conveniently with their sort of notion of how they understood the faith to be, and they would mobilize their networks, their churches, their their uh, the uh, para church kind of organizations, voter guides, to be able to amass a movement of people who would now align themselves with certain economic policies, as well as certain things related to um, the uh, attempt to moralize the economy in a particular way and keep dangerous immigrants out.
1: So that's a a
2: very long way of winning. No, that's great. Getting there uh, is, is pretty important and hard to get to if you just don't have the history, if you don't know. One of the things that that really helps, I think, to just kind of speed up
0: to the present moment Mm -hmm. um, is the the concept that you mentioned of, so what are the theological ideas um, that are also maybe a part of American civil religion that have been so uh, impacted by white Christian libertarianism that they may have taken on a different shape than that original theological idea was intended? For instance, I think a lot about the concept of like Christian freedom Mm -hmm. and American freedom Mm -hmm. and how those had blended together in a kind of quasi-civil religion nationalism. But now we're almost hearing it more in terms of an economic concept. Freedom is like this freedom from restraint. Mm. Always this freedom from nobody can tell me what to do. and And also particularly when you start thinking about corporations being declared individuals. That's right and you want to give corporations freedom from restraint as individuals, you know, um, this concept of freedom then, which is a theological idea also um, Mm -hmm. really becomes, and I I think about this in terms of all kinds of things right now, reopen protesting, um, wearing masks, um, declaring that the church should reopen from a, I mean, what, and what time ever has, has the president ever spoken directly about congregations and what they ought to do? I mean, that, and, and, and the fact that one, out of one ear of a person, we could hear that as radical freedom, and another person could hear that as radical oppression. Uh, how, how is this concept of freedom
2: operating now? I mean, yeah, well, well, in the immediate moment, it's very clear to me that there is an affinity between churches seeking to reopen and the quietness on the part of Republicans to not challenge that. And so there is, again, a sort of alignment or affinity uh, of being able to support the reopening of churches alongside um, what, what they see as their own then support on the other side of being able to reopen the economy as a whole. And so the idea of being able to reopen the economy and not challenging the reopening of churches to me are a part of the same narrative. But to go further back, um, there are many ways that we can start this. I mean, some of us would go all the way back to the notions of imperialism i mean we're talking about walter raleigh the, the freedom or the, or the many people have heard about the um uh, the discovery doctrine you know or or the, uh, those kinds of things where somehow the idea of the freedom of being able to go into places and take them over and and see that as an expression as an expression of of god's kingdom you know already being owned is just being claimed in a sense um but to be more immediate Most people, I think, who might listen uh, to this conversation are aware of the social gospel uh, movement in the early 20th century, uh, Rauschenbusch, and that most people know that there was this very passionate and very biblically based arguments about caring for the worker and caring for the poor and about the cautions against capitalism and the excesses. Uh, of corporations, and, and and even calling out um, that America and the system of, of government in America would support that. But see, the thing is, is that quickly became entangled with anti-communism. And anti-communism was the largest threat of that time. And that anti-communist threat loomed so large, it became such an existential um, feeling of how am I going to protect who we are. And communism was always thought to be anti-God. So anti-communism was anti-atheism, which became really anti-white Christian, uh, white Christianity. And so th- anything that seemed to smell or hint of communist or socialist imperatives was immediately deemed to be unchristian. And that narrative grew. Now, part of the reason that it grew is not just because conservative Christians had already been building this understanding for quite a while. And Moody was a big part of that, by the way, Dwight mm-hmm. Moody. <clears throat> so you can go back for quite a while and really understand and see that this shoe salesman already had an affinity for Christian uh, businessmen and wanted to, to build Christian businessmen and, and see how that works. And, and some other work has tied uh, Christian fundamentalism to that business mentality. But it is important to know that in the early 20th century, there was a distinctive rallying and resourcing of a new type of theology that would be explicitly pro-capitalist, that it would be friendly to capitalism. Uh, And there were a network of clergy that partnered with people like Howard Pugh and and, um, some other big names that they would be able to fund on the part of, of wealthy Christian businessmen, who are now coming into great wealth, and that they would then support those ministries and those messages that would be most aligned with a friendliness to the white Christian corporation, if you will. And so that that white court Christian corporation would give permission for a person to be a capitalist and a Christian too. So when you get um, a little bit further, um, uh, although Robert H. Schuller is not the only one, but Robert H. Schuller in the ministry of the Development from a drive-in theater all the way to the Crystal Cathedral was one of the most explicit in saying, of course, you can be a good Christian and a good capitalist. And, uh, and that resonance was something that just fits so nice into suburban white Orange County, but it was a national message. Uh, yeah. And his mentor, Norman Vincent Peale, was one of those original people who, reaching out to uh, white Christian businessmen, people had anxieties about the market, being able to move up the ladder, didn't know what they were going to do, and he wanted to support their families and were caught up in this, his messages of positive thinking were explicitly oriented toward that kind of person. His audience was the white Christian businessman uh, traveling on the road trying to make the next sale. That is exactly who he was trying to reach. So when we start to see the connections between white corporate business And the alignment of new theology, new theological innovation that would bring the messages of the Old and New Testament to be business friendly. That I think helps to account for why we get to a point today when we see the reopening of the economy and the freedom associated with economic activity. To, in commerce, in entrepreneurialism, as well as buying, uh, buying and selling kind of stuff, that that would be now a part of what it means to be a good Christian uh, and that uh, yeah. and a good wow. American. So that's where it's I think really that-
0: helpful. And I that one of the I'm gonna I want to ask Mia to ask a question here in just a minute. The terrible irony to me, or I guess maybe horrific, would be a better word than that, is that on the one hand. the the logical trajectory of that particular theological vision, which also is a social and economic vision, has led to the greatest freedom ever in humankind for corporations. Yes. And the worst, the least amount of freedom for individuals. And yet the individuals themselves continue to yell about freedom when there's no unions and workers in America are the least free, maybe than they've ever been um, you know, at least white workers, I would say,
2: you know, oh, it's, a, it's a little bit difficult there to understand at that point, we have to really work with what we mean by freedom because, uh, one of the theorists that I admire the most, who I think is not read enough, um, is his name is Ulrich Beck. And I won't go through all of Ulrich Beck for you, but he wrote a wonderful, <laughs> wonderful set of, of, um, of writings on individualization. And what he said was that the, or uh, the, um, The movement of modernity, the movement of the modern world is for um, structures to have less responsibility for individuals, Mm -hmm. that structures no longer overall um, encompass individuals. We now have to go between many different structures, and because we are working between so many structures, no single structure um, watches over us. No single structure determines our identity or actions, and that leaves each of us alone, To construct a biography, to construct a narrative, to construct a continuity, and to constantly navigate between all of these things. And it becomes so difficult because there are different moral imperatives depending on which structure you engage So there's no doubt that to the extent that which all of us are involved in a capitalist structure, all of us are involved in some ways wanting to make sure that the economy reopens because our livelihoods are dependent on a lot of these things. But then we're sort of going, but wait, you know, and, and engaging with what these other logics might tell us. And we don't really know what to do, which is why I think the church today still has a vital role because Mm -hmm. although no one fully exists within any singular church. That is very rare for a person to only be within one church. It does exist, but it's hard to do, and it takes a tremendous amount of energy for people to do that. It's a form of fundamentalism. But, but for those who are a part of a church, the church has the capacity of helping people to morally navigate the demands that they have between so many different structures and still be faithful to God's call. So that's exactly what I think the work of discipleship is today. It's less about getting more volunteers in your church Sunday school or usher. It is more about how are you equipping them to be able to live in a world that's very difficult to navigate and, and be able to do that in a way uh, that would help us to um, be consistent with what God might want of us.
1: Wow. That's interesting. Um, Gerardo, I've been thinking a lot while you've been talking about, um, and Ben just brought it up about poor white folk. We've been talking a lot about when you were, when you were breaking off, uh, Sort of, uh, you talked earlier about the focus being on black and not on indigenous or Latinx or some of the other marginalized groups. Um, I'm curious about your thought about poor white folk and their faith communities, essentially because those freedoms, those fake freedoms that don't really <laughs> that don't really exist, a lot of them are still thinking, or at least vocalizing that that's what they're fighting for, even though they are some of the most margin economically marginalized people in this country. Where do they fall into this in this equation?
2: Oh, well, thank you so much for asking that Mia, because this is something that over the last couple of years I've tried to figure out to be able to teach with my students. And the most helpful um, movement that I've had is actually from the Marxists. Now I know a lot of people don't like Marxists and think that they're dangerous, but the Marxists have been the ones who have been for the longest time thought the most about how capitalism works and what the, um, what the newest uh, thinking about this um, has to say, which really dates from Cedric Robinson, but moving forward, Cedric Robinson being uh, a, a wonderful writer who actually argued against what Marxism had been arguing for a long time. Cedric Robinson said we were not paying attention to um, black people when we talk about capitalism. And so the way he talked about it is this, and this is the way it makes sense to me. A long time ago, when industrialization started, there was an implicit agreement that white workers would be recruited uh, as a bargain so that we would pay you a wage and make it a regular wage so that you could live your life. We all know that exploitation is happening. We all know that a worker is not earning as much as they could if they did it on their own. So the capitalist is shaving off the top, sometimes a lot off the top, in order to provide this person security for a job. But what is also neglected is that we are going to favor white workers over other workers. And so uh, an intriguing quote is, um, behind Manchester lies Mississippi. And what is meant by that is that in Manchester, where industrialization started, wage work among whites, even though they were exploited, was regular and there, there were jobs to be had. But in Mississippi, there was slavery and so instead of exploitation of labor we call that expropriation we take we say that's labor that's just taken and we don't even we don't even try to compensate it and so uncompensated labor provides the raw materials for segments of the economy where white workers work with that and process it into consumable goods and if you trace that forward what you have is over the period of the 20th century that agreement has broken down because the extent of exploitation has only increased. So that the white worker who had who had hoped to have a fairly high wage over time by working faithfully in a corporation has now been subverted. Benefits have been taken away, the steady increase of wages never came through, and As it went down, while the previous promise was really to white male workers so that they could have their uh, wife at home and their kids so that the wife managed the household while the, the man managed the work, okay, the wife now started to work because now you need two incomes in order to try to sustain this lifestyle. Well, that we've come nearly to the end to, where even if you have two incomes in a household and not even near the semblance of having you know kids and dinner at home and a weekend of rest that that that's not really there any longer that that happens um, in in a sense where there's the protection of keeping black people out is not enough so that the manner of exploitation is now so great that the one reading of this is that white workers are still trying to have corporations live up to an ideal negotiation that happened over a century ago. (sighs) One that does not, one that does not include people of color because it never included people of color. And once those little threads started to come together, I felt like now I was reading the front page and reading history. Now I was going like, wow, this is so consistent. And so what you have is the agitation of white workers buttressed often by a religious orientation that also aligned itself with this economic system who are still trying to make it work. And they're putting excessive trust in corporations and those who manage large assets to bring back things like manufacturing. When we all know that that's actually not going to occur. Because the same reasons that led to the exploitation is what led to the outsourcing. It led to the obliteration of um, middle management. You know, it led to the decline of white collar work, you know. So we've really come to a point where um, corporations are still trying to figure out how can we expand the level of exploitation that we have. And that's often through things like taking out more loans, you know, <laughs> having, you know indebting yourself even greater, all those kinds of things. Um, but the playbook, to me, is exactly the same. It's never had compassion for people of color and for those outside of the system. And for those who are within the system, the agreement has become more and more disfavorable. You know? mm-hmm. That the level of exploitation has grown so greatly uh, that the agitation has only grown. So I think that's one way of understanding the hope that was placed in an entrepreneur, a wealthy entrepreneur, Donald Trump, and um, and other kind of rhetoric that plays on trying to accentuate the economy, or if we lower taxes, corporations are going to give higher wages. And it's unfortunate that history has always shown and continues to show that that does not happen. So it's more wow. of the same happening now. Wow. Man, you, they think... <laughs> We've, we think he's – that makes so much sense when you go back to,
0: like, his book and you think, oh, he's going to get us the deal we've always That's thought true. we He's the deal guy, and so we're going to just get him to
2: get us that deal that we, we're supposed to have in Industrial Revolution. Right. The book we all should read is a wonderful book called Welfare for the Wealthy. It's not the only book, but it's a wonderful book that I write about in my own. I summarize some of the key aspects of it, but it, it, it sort of says, look, there's going to be costs associated with doing government no matter what. Okay? But the libertarian argument has always been <clears throat> that we need to make decisions that would accentuate credit, that would accentuate assets, that would accentuate um, you know the ability for businesses to grow, but that's essentially the libertarian government. Uh, the, the libertarian argument for government <clears throat> and so in do, in doing so, that means that the government should reduce things that they could income that they could actually get income that they could actually accrue uh, in favor of 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 saying okay we 're not going to go ahead and get that income so that the business can grow so anytime you hear about a city that 's trying to attract business and they give them tax incentives of different sorts that 's actually income that the city has decided we're not going to collect in the hope of growing this business. Right. And that, that comes to millions and millions of dollars in cities and they compete with each other aggressively. Hey, look, we will collect less income. We, we will willingly collect less and less than these other folks in order to help you. Okay. But the argue, but that's a cost. Okay. The economists say that is a cost. So when we then distinguish between the cost of Republican um, initiatives of policy, which is the lack of of getting income that you could legitimately get versus the direct cost of things like um, food for poor children or housing subsidies or things like that. Healthcare. Exactly. The, this book, Welfare for the Wealthy, has done the work, calculated the numbers, and the clear conclusion is the cost of Republican initiatives to not get the income that they legitimately get is far greater than the direct costs governments would have had if they would have gone ahead and pursued those things that would have helped people at a, as a whole. And so that's why you have a fundamental conflict between something like granting health care for everyone. Healthcare uh-huh. for everyone would be a direct cost from the government that would help every American. But it conflicts with the initiative to not pursue more income on the part of Republicans in order to accentuate private enterprise. And as we know, even though the argument is that private enterprise will help us all because it's supposed to like lift all boats or something like that, or old dragon trickle down economy we know that that actually doesn't happen. We have those numbers. This is not controversial. That's the thing. If you have empirical data, it's not controversial. And so once we understand that, then that was, has always helped me to understand why is it that our pension systems are failing? Pension systems are being converted into 401ks, privatizing them, again, trying to put more in the hands of of uh, private individuals and private corporations, because that's what 401ks do, right? They put money yeah. directly in the hands of, of corporations. Um, at the same time, the government wants to reduce the guarantee of pensions in order to reduce, quote unquote, the cost of government. And well, so that, I
0: just, Yeah, I just heard today a very a, 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 like, very specific example of that related to education. So this the big care package that came out uh, was to try to t- some of it t- was to take care of school districts which a lot of them are going bankrupt these are public okay. school districts that are go- getting ready to go belly up and 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 so there was some money allocated for that but the the directive that came down from Betsy DeVos was that it should be it should be used for private schools that's right that's right and, and, exactly and it could be pushed and and, and in the original write up though from congress that it was approved it, it said that it should go to private schools Only for poor and low income students that private schools were actually had actually had. But not that's not what the directive from DeVos said her directive said, no, no, no. It should go to all private school students. That's all private schools and not just for their low income students. And so what you see happening there is the privatization of, of the crisis. That's right. You know, use of the crisis as a moment to further private to privatize American education system. That's right. Or dis- the disadvantage the public schools. Exactly.
2: Which is always said to be cheaper than public schools. But the cost is different. It's a different kind of cost that's being so. Also, we know that private schools don't reach out in the same way. They don't have the same level of responsibility to educate all of our children. So those kinds of things are very real. They're very relevant. And they continue on today. And that's going to only spill out into our future as we see the decline in public funding probably accelerate to the extent that we have Republicans um, who continue to have a hefty majority or a hefty um, uh, group within any particular body from the local to the federal level. And we will continue to see that fight because the rhetoric is so ingrained. It's very difficult for people to come to understand things differently because the rhetoric is already working in a particular way.
1: That's what I wanted to follow up on because you're saying we have the empirical data. <laughs> if you pay attention to the news or any, I mean, you don't have to be an expert to see what's happening here. So it, particularly I'm, I'm interested in where is the breakdown, um, particularly with poor white folk and poor others, right? I, I'm saying that because we have a wonderful member of, of Myers Park Baptist who was uh, doing journalism in the sixties, fifties and sixties and seventies. And one of the things that he noticed was when he was actually able to get poor white folk and poor black folk together in Mississippi, things were starting to move and shake. Uh, but we we're we're really failing at that right now. Where is the breakdown in getting the information? To the That's a,
2: yeah, I hear you, Mia. It is tough to know because we know from the Reconstruction period immediately at the moment at which. Blacks were freed, right? When they were no longer enslaved, we know that the, that the politics of the time already pulled poor whites, propertyless whites to saying, why do they get benefits and we don't? So from the very beginning, there's always been this sense that uh, of a belief, I think it's a wrong belief, but it's a belief that somehow um, people of color have always been somehow getting goods from government that white people should get because they're just as poor, um, but they don't get because they're white. And so then there's a little line that continues on that somehow people of color always want uh, special privileges based on some sort of historic injustice that happened a long time ago in their minds, and therefore is something that they should not have. And that is part of the affirmative action debates. It's part of any enterprise that seeks to you know, like help black businesses or minority businesses or any kind of minority programs. And so I think that basically what we have today is we don't have white workers at any level really thinking about things on the basis of their own economic interest. This is where um, what the political scientists have called racial resentment is real. I wish it wasn't because this is where I don't like talking about these things because sometimes when you talk about things, you make them even more real. But this, this measure of racial resentment is something that cannot be attributed to anything else other than a pure sense of racial disregard, Uh, a, 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 a thinking that black people are are terrible worse off lazy um uh less less smart you know etc um gaming the system just because of race and so i think that that has simply uh, gone on and so now because it becomes an ideological thing where ideologically they're framed in terms of particular kind of worldview <clears throat> and it's one that consciously makes people ignorant about race. It's not color blindness. I think that it's a conscious ignorance about race. There are so many ways in which we can veil ourselves about the way in which racial systems work that the the, the race doesn't even come into the conversation and they just align with these larger things. That's the way I see it, even though it's a bit abstract so it's hard to go, ah, but we can find instance after instance and it's really about having what I would consider a better conceptual frame for how we understand reality, right? So, yeah. go ahead.
1: I just want to say, and, and to, to jump forward, you can continue to jump forward that you were saying it's abstract, but I would say that that racial resentment is, you know, it's the fuel behind these reopen movements, and I'm not wearing masks. and But it's hard to make that jump for most people. They would just say, oh, you're pulling the, well, they'll tell me I'm pulling the race card, but it's there. That's That's real.
2: Yeah, I don't, again, I don't disagree with you. I think the difficulty, again, is that somehow, because look, none of us, none of us grasp all of reality. Whatever reality is, it's too complex, it's too, it's whatever, it's out. So we all need things in order to grasp what reality might be. And in order to grasp that reality, we need concepts. And most of us get those concepts just by growing up. You know, We get them in all these different places. And the more that we're dependent on media, the more we're dependent on the corporations that support that media because really they're not interested in truth, they're interested in entertainment and and, and tickling you and in getting you back. So uh, many people consider themselves well-informed or actually not very well-informed. They are a part of very narrow channels of familiarized concepts that seem to reinforce for them, this is what reality is. And so one of the gifts that I think education brings us, if it's done right, is to introduce you to alternative frames of grasping whatever reality might be. I think this is also the power of preaching. Preaching has the capacity to give us alternative frames for being able to grasp things that would otherwise be lost on us, right? And so that's where the... the the capacity of educators, of clergy, of conscientious citizens, is not just to uh, rally behind things that we all kind of know, but to really be able to get over and beyond a particular ethos, that which tells us what's good, right, and true, to be able to actually grasp, okay, what's actually going on here, and what becomes the most productive lens for doing so. And so for many people, once they start to grasp racial injustice, racial injustice becomes a pathway by which they begin to engage in alternative frameworks. Mm. And that yeah. becomes very helpful for them to see things, you know, but until they're willing to do so, then they will just continue to ride the same argument over and over again, because there are too many things that reinforce exactly what they think they know. Uh, it's absolutely really helpful. Cause it can be, it,
0: you know, sometimes it's racial injustice, but it could also be like for us thinking about my own narrative, for me, one of the first things that I remember kind of really um, changing the frame for me was the question of uh, how the Christian relationship with Judaism and the historic oppression of the Jewish people, which doesn't really make sense given that Jesus was Jewish and Paul was thought of himself as nothing but Jewish. So you have this, and then you see that go from to this radical anti-Semitism to. To the Middle Ages, where you know they blame the whole, they blame the plague on Jews and have all these violence against Jewish people. Then the pogroms, then the Holocaust, and it goes on and on and on. You just think to yourself, how could Christian people do this? What, what in the world? How do they get their mind to? And you realize that the theological frame itself was broken. Right. That they had a theological frame that was pursued, that pursued violence. It was a violent, um, mal- malformed theological vision that led right. to violence toward the Jewish people That's and then right. you, if you could attach that to also sort of an anti-black theological lens or colonialist theological lens or imperialist theological you start to make sense of all these and and things like the const, good ideas and words that are positive like freedom and personal responsibility and salvation and these you know these things family these things that seem good they, yeah they're generally good as ideas um, and you see how they begin to be marshaled uh, to maintain the status quo in an oppressive context. Right. And, it's, it's,
2: and I would, I would add yeah. that because because social change is constant, that's why we can't read a theology from any particular period and somehow say, okay, they got it right, yeah. and then just just adopt that. And so whether it's um, Thomas or Aquinas or yeah. um, I've read quite a bit of systematic theology, but they, there are some long books, you know, several volumes that you could read on any particular one written in 18-something, you know? Uh, yeah. and, and the thing is you go, oh, they were so comprehensive, they spelled it all out. If you just read that, I know theology, okay? But if we take into account that not only does is reality unfathomable, fully unfathomable, and not only does it continue to change, but also the spirit apparently continues to move. That's what I think every almost every person I know, uh, who who, who believes in, in uh in the Christian sort of framework believes that the spirit is still active, then it's incumbent upon us to always challenge ourselves about the reality we think we know. And to be able to find ways, so the framework that we require today, if there's a theological framework that we, is not one that locks reality so that we we learn it at one time, whether it's at 6, 16, or, you know, 26, uh, and and that's what you have for the rest of your life. It has to be a framework that will accommodate Mm. knowing that change will occur. And that's where I think it's very difficult because most people don't think that way. And most people find it hard to find those that to live with that kind of uncertainty, but to yeah. me, that's the creativity that's required on the part of our spiritual leaders mm-hmm. is to provide. A- you used to call that uh, progressive revelation, which is uh, it was, it's uh, not always a
0: perfect concept, but um, it, it is an important concept in the history of Myers Park Baptist church in that the first pastor, George Heaton, was talking about progressive revelation in the forties when the church was formed hmm. and it became part of the bedrock of sort of the, the, the creed. Well, now we don't have creeds, but the covenants and the ideas. And you the but you know, I was thinking about that in terms of uh, this coronavirus and and I want to turn toward like, what are lessons have we learned from this? You know, what, what have we gained? What have we gained? an understanding of here, Boy, COVID-19 has really messed up, um, messed up some uh, weak theological categories, or theological categories that we thought were in place and framed well, um, and they have come down like a house of cards, and along with them have come down some social views that were attached to them and some political ideas that were attached to them. I think I see more people writing about the you know, the end of the neoliberal revolution more now than I've ever read before. So people are finally wrestling with the economic, uh, the economic inequality and, and how we got to where we are. You know, from your lens, and I know you've studied a lot of churches, and you're looking at how churches are responding to this. How do you, two, two questions, sort of two parts. How do you see churches have been responding, religious communities, and, and then what do you think we've learned sort of broadly? And I want to ask that about the church mostly. I mean, I can, we've already talked a lot about what we've learned yeah, 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 uh, yeah, about yeah.
2: the society. What have we learned about the church in America? Well, <clears throat> we're still learning, okay, um, partly because not every church is forthcoming about what's actually going on with their finances. Mm. Uh, pers- what? Churches <laughs> wouldn't be transparent about the that is That is a bunch of sociological... Mm-hmm. Hey, no way. Healthy suspicion, <laughs> healthy suspicion. Um, but it's, t- it's tough. Even Robert Shuler said nobody wants to give to a failing enterprise. So there's a sense in which people f- believe that if the ship is going down, that they can't really admit it. Otherwise, it only contributes to its, to its sinking. Uh, but I think that what's surprising is that most people would say, wow, if we only face some major <laughs> existential threat, like a, like a pandemic, um, maybe we would all find unity. And instead, uh, we all, mm. we found a way to politicize this in such a way that the divisions that were already there have only been further accentuated. Mm. Um, I, I find it fascinating the way, um, an obfuscation of, of religious freedom is tied into uh, the notion that we have to meet and, and churches have to be quote unquote, essential, uh, uh businesses when, um, uh, I, I think most people would agree that schools are essential, and yet we all agree that maybe our kids shouldn't be uh, being brought together. So there's a lot of, of things that are going on here that is a really more the use of what's out there available for a pragmatic initiative of what I really want to do. I suspect that um, every pastor understands that this is a financial crisis um, and, and that and that it because you have so many people who give in the midst of, of a service And also that's where the inspiration and the prodding comes from. We're also missing the opportunities to recruit um, volunteers, to make guests feel welcome, uh, to have occasions in which people bring their friends and family. So meeting together, it's, it's, it's more than just, you know, we need to have service. It's that the happenings that orient around the service is part of what makes a lot of ministry happen you know anyone any any pastor knows that the ministry of the church happens through its members and that members meeting in small groups and getting to know Um, difficulties uh, when people admit you know in an intimate circle that maybe things aren't so good that that's really where the help is going to to happen and so as much as we may have wonderful uh, people uh, who who are paid staff who go to hospitals and go to people's homes and and visit we know that that's not going to be enough we know that no pastor could do that no paid staff no dedicated layperson could do enough of that. It's really the church being the body serving each other. And so <clears throat> when we don't meet together, we know that that's not happening. And part of greasing the wheels of finance is also that. So I think that um, pastors are very concerned about how do we continue to define ourselves if we are not able to, to meet together and to recruit more people to be a part of this body that that is going to be a hard thing to do. So I feel like for many people, it's a bit of being on hold. It's about controlling expenses to the greatest extent possible and to wait it out. Nobody knows this This is going to be four months, six months, 12 months. Nobody quite knows. But I also think that we have not yet gotten to a point where the pandemic is normalized. Once it becomes more normalized and people just accept that this is our new way of life, then we will start to accommodate more for things and also probably renegotiate the level of risk that they're willing to tolerate. We already know that there are a lot of conservative churches who insist on meeting together who simply are willing to accept um, a level of risk and simply say, look, we're disinfecting, we're being very thorough, we're keeping a distance. We're willing to accept this level of risk in order to continue to have church. Um, Mm -hmm. We have not gotten to the majority of churches in doing that, but I wouldn't be surprised if we did. And if we did fairly soon. Um, so um, a sociologist who trained me a long time ago said society, according to one theorist, uh, society is like jello. You know, you can move it, you can jiggle it, but the shape remains the same. And there's a sense in which I'm not ready to say that the pandemic has somehow become a before after that society is going to be fundamentally different and somehow, Oh my gosh, all these things are overturned. And, I, I don't believe it. I think that there's an incredible amount of momentum for what we already do. And churches are used to thinking of themselves as gathered communities because that is literally the con- the definition of congregation, gathered yeah. together, right? That is literally. So while we might learn how to accentuate our ministries by adopting more online platforming, by being better at communicating more regularly, that may happen, which would be really good. Um, and we would be more responsible for perhaps correcting false political rhetoric, which is being so, so difficult. I think that our people are not served well when we just say, look, we don't do politics. Look, the, the, the president has wrapped every church in politics. Ooh. If it wasn't clear before, it was absolutely clear when he demanded that churches are essential businesses and need to reopen. So we we can no longer pretend that we're no longer a part of politics. We only need to be smart about helping our people knowing how to navigate what I think is a very difficult time. And,
1: Uh, And we can't pretend that we're not businesses anymore. Uh, That's
2: very true. Thank you. I agree with that because I think, I think a lot of churches have in a sense um, already accepted that. I mean, there is a segment of the American church where they read more business books than theological texts. <laughs> so, uh, right? But that's the majority. <laughs> what do you
0: mean? I mean, every pastor's talking about what leadership book he read last week, written by somebody at Harvard Business School. It's like, right. oh my God.
2: That's right. Which I think uh, Robert Schuler again, was one of the people who helped to really initiate that because he mastered this notion of, of what it meant to manage the church as a business. And he declared himself not pastor of the Crystal Cathedral, he called himself president of the <laughs> Crystal Cathedral. Ooh, ooh. President Ben. There's only one president. There's only
0: one president of the United States. He's right here. You know, he's our Grand Caesar. <laughs> we, you know, we must worship together because we're essential. You know, I, it's interesting to me because I, I wonder just for a second on this. I hadn't even thought about this until you said, you know, the sense of being embodied together. I find it so um, – So uh, it's strange, like a cognitive dissonance that a community that has an idea of salvation that is about as unembodied as any idea of salvation in the history of humanity somehow now will put their grandparents in life or death situation in order to gather. How does that even compute together? Yeah. You know, what, how does that
2: even... Well, that's a little tricky because I think actually evangelicalism is more embodied than we think. Um, first of all, of those who insist that they need to be in a church, that's an embodied experience for sure. Yes. Also, yes. also um, the growth of chariz- uh, charismatic Christianity, the um, implicitness of, of needing to have a very um, immersive kind of worship experience, raising hands, loud music, feeling the bass in your chest. Um, those kinds of things I think are are quite embodied uh, in many ways that I think is it, we don 't always recognize. Uh, I also think that there is a type of embodiment. In prosperity theology, whether it's whether people recognize it as not in their in their teaching in their messages, but when they implicitly say, "Look, the uh, economic system of America is good, and you just need uh-huh. to learn how to navigate it better. You, you need to get out there. You need to learn how to you know, know, right? yeah, yeah. You need to know how to put your material your resume together. You need to know how to get. It. So there are churches that really help people to you know do that kind of face work. Because it is about public presentation and being able to know how to navigate uh, the neoliberal economy, if you will, uh, today. Uh, but you know, uh, it, it's tough because on the other side, they will, they will just say, look, you know, the Bible says it, or, um, Jesus is going to take care of us or people who somehow claim that because they claim the blood, the, the virus Ooh. is not going to affect them at the same time that they're still using seatbelts and they still, you know, <laughs> try to keep their kids away from the edge of the pool or things like that. You know, th- we don't, we has
0: been going after that theology for quite some yeah. time.
2: Right. It's inconsistent. Right. So I think that we have so many abstractions that we have available to us within Christianity. People pull that lever. And um, I think it's really, it's poor thinking, but that's again where I think the work of clergy would be important to give us better concepts than just, Hey, we know we're all in sin, you know, or Hey, we all know grace or Hey, we all know we'll be redeemed. You know, there are a lot of catchphrases that are so easy to get the amen Uh, That you're not helping us, okay? You're not you're not helping me, you know, to really be able to know how to deal with what's going on on a moment by moment basis. And I I think it's just built in. So I think everyone has everyone who claims a faith has an abstraction that they can reach for conveniently whenever they don't want to deal with the nitty gritties. uh, That's just too hard to think about, you know, too much. Yeah, boy. Now you're preaching. Good night. Wow. you know I'm how
0: to climb yeah, that
2: little you think before, before
0: before you went and did that godless, godless secular work of sociology? I know you were a preacher, so
2: yeah, you.
0: well, you know. I always joke that the best response to a, a sermon that's is that's really on the money is not amen, it's amen. The <laughs> question, amen? They're not sure they want to applaud that. They're like, that's. not sure about that you know but that's (laughs) that's kind of what you're saying there it's like well i I wonder if you could i'm a little bit more hopeful than you are about the complete disruption of the american (laughs) economy. but i I wonder hopeful.
2: yeah
0: yeah (laughs) that's hopeful to me that's hopeful i mean what how else do we get out of this mess um you know know, um what what are you hopeful about like what what is a word of hope you could give to church people i want kind of on two two fronts like one is like how to get through this uh, how to be patient and to endure. But I wonder, like one of the things that has come up for me as you were talking is like, how do, how do people get better informed? Mm. And I don't mean this in like, you need to also listen to Fox news. If you listen to CNN, oh, like that no. lame, no, like how do you get better informed as a, as an average lay human being that is not plugged into sociological circles or religious clergy circles? What are some techniques for people to get better informed? And then, what, what hope do you have for the church? Yeah. Of, of the, what word would you give?
2: Well, again, thank you for really good questions. One of the things that for whatever reason I settled with myself when I was very young was I was willing to make myself uncomfortable. And um, for me, I go through uh, many different periods in which I'm trying to understand something something just doesn't come in together and um, I'll reach for something that is just so like, from my standpoint, it's not the way I see things, not the way I look at the world. And I think that um, first people have to really be willing to take whatever discomfort they already have. And instead of pulling on the familiar, be willing to make themselves even more uncomfortable in or- for the, for the risk of shaping a new paradigm that might help them in, in their identity, in their faith, especially, <clears throat> and in their understanding of the world more effectively. Secondly, I I really think that people need to pull on history more, meaning that we we need to be willing to read and immerse ourselves in a period of time and in dynamics that are different from our immediacy in order to get perspective on today. A lot of sociologists don't do this necessarily because we're so busy just trying to get good data on what's happening now. Um, But I have invested a lot of time over the years and even more by uh, particularly the American religious historians who have been able to look back 50 years, 150 years, you know, uh, 250 years, and be able to see the shaping of early America, um, the nature of um, slaveholders and slave breeders and how they still saw themselves as faithful Christians, Um, churches that saw themselves as neutral during the Civil War. Uh, I read a wonderful book exactly about that. About the rise of the Gilded Age, and what was it that churches were doing, uh, various churches at de- various different times, uh, some who established mission outposts, some who simply uh, rode the wave of the gilded age and and, uh, and became wealthy themselves. Uh, You know, uh, those who responded in in contrary ways, you know, uh, a deeper look at the abolitionists, which were a minority movement, not a majority movement. So many Christians say, hey, Christianity was a part of freeing the slaves. Sorry, Uh, that was not the majority of Christians at the time, you know, and really, (laughs) really reading about the minority of people who were literally thrown out of, you know, from second floors, bodily thrown out of churches for the kinds of ideas that they were promoting, the way in which women, we're trying to assert their rights just to speak um, and being denied to do so because they were advocating for causes that were perceived to be just so wrong at the time, you know, uh, all the way up to uh, the most current um, uh, edges of being able to understand the shaping of the religious right. What is it that, sh- that really determines why abortion matters or not? Um, uh, and the immigration question, so confusing, so much bad information. But why is it that immigration is really now more part of managing uh, a criminalized enterprise? The belief that immigrants are criminals, and therefore we put them in detention centers and essentially prisons, and how the prison system intertwines with the immigration system in really intriguing and important ways. You know, there there are just resources that are available. So if we can tie ourselves into a deeper notion of history, what does it mean when we say we're a nation of immigrants? It doesn't mean what most people think. To really look at the shaping of immigration policy, especially the ones that came 1917, 1921, 1926, 1927, uh, those are incredible. The Chinese Exclusion Act, a deeper look at that, that will help us a lot to be able to not be so surprised every time something happens in the moment and to say, look, we have understandings of how this can occur within America by people who see themselves as patriotic And And to trace what that looks like. And, and, and in terms of um, better resources, I just think we need to be better. Sometimes I'm very frustrated uh, because friends will send me things uh, through Facebook and all it takes for me is uh, copying the the header uh, or the keywords and putting it in Google. And usually within a page, um, it immediately tells me that this is, crap. Okay. Like, and that's a soft word. Like it's really like not, you know, and, and so basically what we have is people who simply look at something and retweet or repost uncritically. They don't even do the most essential work of double checking whether something is true. You know, at one point somebody was uh, throwing a panic button about something that was said in Oklahoma and um, just one click and I found that it was from 2009, an old uh, video. It was being recycled and being labeled differently, and the person did just didn't even know. So I said, "You just need to do better, you know. You just need to do better." Uh, so I don't think that it's impossible. I think it's just that we're lazy, really. I mean, yeah. that's, it's you know, it doesn't take a PhD to figure out if yeah. something is is not right, <clears throat> and then you can be a little bit smarter about evaluating the sources of information that you get and their relative accuracy. Um, uh, and, and then if you have time to read more about advertising, marketing, propaganda, you would be surprised to quickly see how often those very same techniques are used over and over and over again. Again, this is not new information. This is stuff that's been around for a very long time. But if you can understand the tools by which rhetoric is and imagery and symbolism is used in order to get you riled up and to get you siding with a particular side – I think that that is a type of prophylactic. You know, it's a type of protection that you can give yourself in being able to move forward. In terms of where That's I'm good. in. I just want to pause. That's a really good yep. way
0: to give people a chance to persevere is, oh, okay, to, yeah. um, is to think about building up their tolerance so they're not shocked into rage because they can see the historical trajectory of a particular incident not that we should not be in a rage at all times in some cases, right? As Baldwin said about black folks, but but that we but that we could also see its connection and therefore not like lose our lose our sense of self and our commitment to the work that we need to do because of some, you know, rhetoric that pumps us in this direction or that.
1: How could he possibly say that
0: yeah. about uh Latinos? Folks, well, no, of course he says that because... Or, or, the,
1: or Ben, the comment from yesterday, human capital stock, was that what, that was said by the politician? Mm-hmm. I forgot the yeah. name, but somebody somebody was talking about something and people were outraged and people were like, well, that really came from like, you know, slavery.
0: <laughs> right, well, let, or let's just go ahead and pick on the left for a minute. I mean, I don't know if I would call this left, but the the, the center that thinks it's left. Uh, and that is just the comments by, by Biden. You know, it's just like these these are not... They shouldn't be surprising, right? We should see them for what they are and not get caught up into the, oh, my God, he said what? You know, right. no, right. this was – that probably was intentional. Right. And I know that people think it was unintentional. It's like a off – it probably was some kind of baiting of people to understand a particular way in which he is positioning his political campaign, you know, and what – who is he going after? Who does he think is going to vote for him? Who does he think is going to win in the election? You know, it's just this kind of same kind of thing uh, all the time. And I think we do need to build up a prophylactic, although we don't use that word in church. So um, what what could we use? You know, like protection, uh, protection shield, a hedge of protection, a hedge of, protection. there you go. <laughs> e- e- Ephesians six, the armor, reach. God, reach. the armor of God against misinformation and propaganda. Yeah. Yeah. The conspiracy theories, which are out of control. Absolutely. Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah, Yeah. I didn't cut you off, but I thought that. No,
2: no, no. I'll just say that um, today, I think people need to realize that while they can't believe every person just because they're a doctor or they're a professor, because there there are many of us, you know, there there are a lot (laughs) of different professors. Not all of them actually; a minority of them are employed full time. Maybe only twenty-two percent or something have actually full-time positions. The great majority of professors today they teach one class, they're adjunct or connected, and so they claim that you know, in in (laughs) some way. Um, uh, but, uh, but it's, it's important to, to just know that today, most, uh, all academic books are meant to be read, um, in an accessible manner. They're for everybody. And so if you pick up something from Princeton University Press, Harvard University, Oxford University Press, Yale, um, Uni- University of North Carolina Press, um, these university presses and other academic publishers are meant to be accessible. I write that way. Most of us are called that way. And it's peer reviewed. There are other people who've had to go through the discipline of working things through to say whether this makes sense, holds together, um, is reliable, as well as going through the editorial boards of these presses themselves. So some of the best information out there is going to be that pre-digested, fully explained and resourced footnoted so that you can be more, um, it's certainly far more reliable than a New York Times opinion column, uh, which sometimes has good information but sometimes may not be quite as reliable in the same way. Great. Gerardo, man, it has been a thrill to talk yes. to you today. Thank
0: you so much for coming out and, and spending the time on Zoom with us and, yes. and having a conversation. Thank you for your friendship and relationship to Myers Park Baptist Church. Mm-hmm. And we just we love having you and Laura there when you can be there and participating through Zoom. And uh, we, we miss you, we miss seeing you, but uh, we really appreciate you bringing some wisdom to this conversation today.
2: Thank you. Well, I would say at least for my part, Myers Hope and the ministry there, Myers Park says, what I, let me start again so you can read. <laughs> <laughs> for my part, in terms of me, let me say that Myers Park Baptist is part of bringing me hope for the future. Mm-hmm. Oh, that means a lot. That means Thank you. Thank you.
1: Thank you for joining us and for sharing your insight and thoughts. And I know that it will encourage some of our people to dig a little bit deeper as we persevere.